welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton. And on today's episode, we're doing a recap uh, review uh, from last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, we just want to tell you, go listen to that. And uh, and so you might want to listen to it after or before, but uh, we're going to be continuing the conversation because, uh, Ken, you're, you're going to expound a lot more on this, but it was it seemed like a very big deal and a lot of things moving and going into a lot of different directions. And, and uh, we want to make sure everyone has uh, all of the information they need to participate in this global event. Right. So last week on the podcast, we had Eric Metaxas and we had Mike Bickle. We put that podcast together pretty rapidly. Mike and I had been on the uh, on a call. It was actually another Zoom call a few days before dealing with some other matters um, in the wider church. And uh, the topic of the fast came up and he knew, he knew already that I was going to be part of it because when he first announced it, he had, he'd actually announced a big zoom call for people to join. And then I think they posted it. And so people could watch the replay and so forth. And so lots and lots and lots of people, uh, we're already reporting in saying, I'm going to participate in the fast. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Um, Mike's original purpose was to see if we could gather a million people to pray for Israel. And it, at this point in time, as we're making this recording, there's well north of 2 million people who have signed up to participate in the fast. And they know this because there is this website called Isaiah 62 fast.com and uh, as you might guess this is based on isaiah 62 which we'll visit briefly on on this uh, chat today um so there's a fast been called and it's on behalf of the nation and the people of israel and as mike and i were talking you know he said we should do something and get eric on the on the uh, on a zoom and let's broadcast that and so what you saw last week was very kind of spontaneous spur of the moment um you could anybody who's an, a trained observer would have known that was not an orchestrated or scripted discussion although we kind of knew where we wanted to go with it and uh and i told eric you know you do far more like hardcore journalistic style interviewing than i do um, I lead conversations on my podcast and I can drill into things, but, but Eric has that New York edge for sure. And so I thought, you know, I'll let him kind of play that role, but now, uh, to follow up what we recorded and already put out, um, I wanted to address the fast in a little more detail. So, um, what is this fast? Well, as we mentioned on the podcast last week, this is a time of real existential crisis uh, within Israel. And I'm actually gonna reverse it and I'm gonna take the outer issues first, mainly because they're fairly straightforward and easier to understand. And then I'll spend the rest of it talking about what's happening internally. But you know, Israel has been under pressure pretty much since the day it came into being as a nation state uh, there were the, the several Arab nations declared war. Uh, the, the day that Israel was announced as a nation, this was in 1948, um, the Israelis prevailed. And so Israel came into being. 
but it was kind of a fragmented, broken uh, piece of land. And by broken, I mean broken up, kind of a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, they formed a government, which was immediately recognized by the United States under President Eisenhower uh, and then Truman. Excuse me, I, I should have said Truman. That was a mistake, Truman. And then, uh, and then the British government also recognized uh, the Jewish government that had been formed. And so in those years, there was a lot of sentiment to help Israel because of the Holocaust. We'd just been through the Second World War. Um, all of the Allied armies had seen the death camps. Most of the Allied leaders had you know, taken trips to visit them themselves. And the Nuremberg trials ensued as a result to convict those guilty of these war crimes and also to document all that had been done. And I'm making a point of mentioning that, by the way, uh, because there is a very great tendency underway right now in the world to deny that the Holocaust ever happened, that, that there ever was a mass genocide in the 20th century targeted at the Jews. Most of the Islamic nations of the world, including Iran, uh, denied that a Holocaust ever happened. Uh, there is a strong strain of it that is resurgent in Europe including among, of course, skinheads or neo-Nazis, but they're not the only ones. And then uh, there's also a strong strain of Holocaust denial out there in a lot of the social media feeds, which you, know, you may be following depending on who you are and kind of what your tastes are and so forth. But as you think about whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or even in Rumble or Parler, or some of these others, MeWe, um, a lot of them have people that are Holocaust deniers. Well, the Holocaust is one of the most well-documented genocides in the history of mankind, which is a huge statement, I know, but I'll stand by it. And so um, why is Holocaust denial dangerous? Well, for the same reason that people who support things like BLM, Black Lives Matter, or similar kinds of movements, they say that to deny the things that have happened in the past is dangerous because it means there's a higher likelihood that those things will recur or that people won't repent. They won't change what they've been doing. And when you have nations around Israel that declare war the day they uh, came into being, and then they had another war in 1967, 19 years later, uh, which nearly ended uh, the nation of Israel, and then yet another one in 1973, um, you know, that's three wars, major wars for Israel um, between 1948 and 1973. So if you do the math on that in a 25 year period, uh, this was, this shows you the level of animosity, hatred, et cetera, um, on the part of those Arab nations that surround Israel toward Israel. Now, since that time, some of them have moderated. They've taken a, a, a more accommodating position. One of those is the Kingdom of Jordan. Um, that is facilitated, by the way, by large numbers of dollars that are given to the Kingdom of Jordan every year in order to help keep the peace. Uh, but anyway, they have come to the table, as it were. Saudi Arabia has come to the table. There was, during late in the Trump administration, there was a series of peace treaties signed with several of the major Arab states that became known as the Abraham Accords. The idea being that Abraham is the father of the monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so um, it, it's sort of 
taken as a given by many that the uh, on some level the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims are all uh, estranged brothers and sisters or cousins or something, but but they are ultimately kind of cut from the same rootstock. And so the Abraham Accords were seeking to affect peace. And I didn't look this up before we started this podcast, but from memory, I think the Trump administration single-handedly orchestrated six or seven peace treaties between Israel and several major Arab states. Now, the Jordan Treaty was in existence, as was the Egypt Treaty. Those, those were negotiated prior to the Trump administration. Um, but, but under Trump, Saudi Arabia signed a treaty, uh, Dubai did. Um, anyway, you can look them up. Just look up the Abraham Accords. Again, I didn't prep myself for that. I probably should have. But anyway, but there are some states that have not at all come to the table. And one of them is the nation state of Gaza, which is part of the Palestinian territories, and the nation state, well, Hezbollah effectively controls most of southern Lebanon. And the Lebanese army is too weak to bring them under control to hold them at bay. So Hezbollah is kind of a uh, proxy ruler for much of the nation of Lebanon. And between those two, Gaza and southern Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah, um, there's something in the neighborhood of 100,000 rockets and missiles pointed at Israel. And every now and then, if you're watching the news, they'll shoot a bunch of them into Israel. And when they do it, they'll, they'll send two or 3,000 of them. It's not like one or two. And so um, this has the potential to wreak mass casualties within Israel. Israel has an air defense system, which uh, they have, I would say, perfected based on a system that the United States gave them. And so now and then a missile will get through or a rocket will get through, but not often. But I, I want to be clear, the threat is real. And the fact that they're shooting at all, you know, if you think of just the way we think about handguns in the United States, if somebody has a handgun and they draw it and point it at somebody, that's considered an intent to kill. If you pull the trigger, it's, it's prima facie evidence that you were trying to kill, not just having the intention. And so when they're firing rockets and missiles at Israel, um, it, it's quite clear what the intention is. And both of these groups, Hezbollah and Hamas, have stated that their intention is to wipe out Israel. And Mike kind of made mention of this, but um, I'm trying to make this a little more slow, a little more thorough, a little more clear for those who don't understand the background. Yeah, and um, just, to con just to confirm, that was in 2020 uh, where the Abraham Accord uh, took place. Um, there was the UAE and Bahrain um, and Israel and the U.S. Okay. There were a couple of other countries that came in, though, also. Maybe, maybe Saudi Arabia was 2019. Okay. I'll continue to research. All right. Yeah, you can research it while I'm talking. So here's the, here's the rub. Iran is a sworn enemy of Israel, and they have said that their intention is to destroy the nation state of Israel, and uh, they're calling for a genocide of the Jews. Their leadership pretty regularly does this. Now, Iran is a particular branch of Islam, uh, not unlike within Christianity, where you have Catholics and Protestants. They're both Christians, but there's a pretty bloody history between both groups. There's a similar kind of a history 
between the Shiites and the Sunnis. So Iran is Shiite and the Sunnis are pretty much everybody else who's Muslim anywhere else in the world. And um, they have somewhat different traditions. And the very big divide between the, the Shiites and the Sunnis is the Shiites believe that Muhammad's son, Ali, uh, was the first uh, you know, caliph, the first ruler of the Islamic empire. Um, and the Sunnis don't recognize Ali. And there's various reasons why, but I'm not here to give you a lesson in Islamic history, but that's really the divide. So Iran is a sworn enemy of Israel. They've been seeking to develop a nuclear weapon. And pretty much anybody that you read or listen to or talk to will tell you that in May, uh, whether 1st of May or maybe a little later in the month, but May in May, um, Iran will likely have a serviceable, deliverable nuclear weapon. And they've been working on ballistic missiles for a while. Um, it's uh, you know around a thousand miles, maybe maybe a little more, from uh, kind of central Iran over to Israel, and they've said they intend to nuke Israel. Now, will they? I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that the persuasion and diplomacy of the world would be enough to hold them at bay, uh, because the idea of somebody willfully launching a nuclear strike. Um, at a nation which is not at war with them, although there is gr a great deal of tension. I don't want to make it sound like these are peaceful neighbors at all. Um, so with that kind of looming, uh, there, is, there is a very real possibility that Iran will actually use the nuclear weapon they develop to nuke uh, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. And, and I know that's a huge statement, but the thing you have to do is just listen to the statements their leaders are making. Now, is it bluster? Well, it's hard to know is really the answer. Um, but the, as I said, when, when Eric and Mike and I were podcasting, the last time somebody didn't take a serious threat against the Jewish people seriously, you got the death camps of Adolf Hitler. And so... Uh, basically, Israel's motto has been since the Holocaust, never again. We will never let it happen again. And so there is a possibility of a major, major war between Israel and Hezbollah and Hamas backed by Iran. And what that might look like, um, well, that could be anyone's guess, but uh, it could possibly include the use of a nuclear weapon against Israel and it, it's likely that if that were to happen, uh, Israel would retaliate in kind. And it's sort of an open secret in the military intelligence community that Israel has nuclear weapons. They've never admitted to it, uh, but it's, it's fairly widely recognized that they, they must and they do. Um, and of course, when you're surrounded by hostile neighbors, there'd be a reason why you'd want to have those. So could this lead to a nuclear war? Never mind what you're hearing about Ukraine with Russia. Um, this is possibly closer in and has, a, I would say, a broader and deeper history to make that seem like a credible threat. So the FAST is, on, at least in terms of external tensions, designed to hold at bay uh, the dogs of war, the angels of war that might be unleashed uh, with the idea of drawing the entire world into global conflict. Because if this were to happen, um, it, it's almost inevitable that this would lead to a, a widespread worldwide um, conflagration 
Um, I don't know where our own government would stand with regard to this. Historically, the United States has stood with Israel and has been an ally of theirs. But um, Bill Clinton, the Democratic president, was known at least to chew out the Israeli government when he didn't like what they were doing. Um, Obama really backed away from them and kind of threw them under the bus on a couple of occasions. And Joe Biden does not seem to be particularly committed to Israel. So would we go to war uh, on behalf of Israel? Um, I don't know. Politics makes strange bedfellows. Uh, certainly many Jews are uh, proponents or participants in the Democratic Party. So within you know, their own base, as people like to say, the Democrats would probably have great pressure brought to bear to do something on behalf of Israel. Uh, and I think many Republicans would say we must. So I think, I think the possibility is, is real um, and not to be understated or downplayed. But I'm going to stop short of saying, yes, absolutely, we would jump into the fray because I'm not sitting at the table where those decisions are getting made. All right, that's the external picture. Internally, um, since roughly the 22nd or 3rd of March, uh, there have been protests all over Israel and I've got a few notes, so you'll see me look down. I just want to be clear. People sometimes say, you know, are you, are you researching? Well, yeah, of course, I did go do some research for this next piece because I want to explain more clearly, even than Mike did, uh, what's happening internally with Israeli politics. Uh, but I'm not prophesying here, so it's okay for me to be doing research. Um, so there, were, there have been protests all over the country um, with hundreds of thousands of Jews marching in the streets, demonstrating against what is called judicial reform. And again, Eric Metaxas, when he was interviewing Mike, he was trying to get Mike to articulate clearly what that was. And I think, I think Mike had watched YouTubes and things. Um, I want to try and make this easier to understand and make it more succinct uh, so everybody understands what's going on internally. Israel is a nation of roughly 9 million people. I don't know what the rounding off is maybe it's 9.3 million or 9.5 million, but about 9 million people. And it's approximately the size of New Jersey, the state of New Jersey. So when you say you've got hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating, it's really a question of how many hundreds of thousands, but let's say you had 10 hundred thousand, that would be a million. That would be more than 10% of the nation. Uh, Specifically, 1 million would be about 11% of the country. And so hundreds of thousands of people have been demonstrating in the streets over this thing called judicial reform. Well, what is judicial reform? Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister of Israel. And for those who don't understand the, prime, the parliamentary system, let's, let's simplify it grossly. And let's just say in the United States, we have a president who leads our country in parliamentary systems, the prime minister leads those countries and uh, Israel has a parliamentary system. So Benjamin Netanyahu uh, has, I'd say had a pretty rough ride over the last four years. Um, he was accused of corruption. He left office and uh, he ultimately was reelected. And I would say even for people who support him Having talked to quite a few Israelis about this, even for people who were supporters of his, a lot of them see a lot of stench around Netanyahu. And so in this sense, 
if you just think of, I got to be careful how I say this because I don't want to make people angry and I'm not trying to alienate anyone. But let's just say there's a lot of taint around Donald Trump. There's a lot of, uh, you know, smoke and uh, maybe there's fire there. Maybe there isn't. But but things are not straightforward and clean with, with Donald Trump. And as everybody knows, he's uh, under indictment from a grand jury in the state of New York in connection with his relationship with Stormy Daniels. Um, you know, there was a time in American politics, hard to believe, I know, where nobody with, a, with anything like that on their record, whether it's true or not, even the accusation uh, would be enough for them to be gone from power for good. All we need to do is think about uh, the Walter Mondale scandal. All we have to do is think about the Gary Hart scandal. Um, you know, these were both of them Democrats, but there was taint. Um, we can think of Walter, uh, Walter Mondale as well who was a vice president to uh, President Nixon. So this is not just Democrats, Republicans as well. And he was forced out of office uh, again because of the idea that he may have been taking kickbacks or bribes in connection with awarding certain contracts um, in his state when he, was, uh, when he was not in federal office, but at state level office. So there was a time in American politics where any taint, whether moral, financial, whatever, would be enough that you'd be swept from the field in a moment. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I certainly remember these events. And so again, this is an indication of the moral decline in America that people kind of shrug their shoulders and they're like, what does it matter to me? No big deal. So Netanyahu is at least a problematic figure. I know there are many people who love him. They call him Bibi. Benjamin, his nickname is Bibi. Um, I'm not making a call on that either way. I'm simply trying to give you as dispassionate of an understanding of what's going on with internal Israeli politics as I can. So the prime minister, Benjamin Yahoo, uh, decided to fire his defense minister. And the reason he, hired, he fired his defense minister is because the defense minister had uh, asked for a halt to Netanyahu's plans to overhaul the judiciary. Now, why does that matter? Well, because in Israel, their judiciary is much less layered than ours is in the United States. In the US, at the federal level, we have federal courts, appellate level courts, and the Supreme Court. And so there's a whole process you can go through if you're trying to you know, bring something before a federal magistrate. But in Israel, they just have the Supreme Court and it has 15 members. And the way the Supreme Court functions in Israel, it generally has a fairly right of center uh, perspective to it. Part of that's as a result of the ultra right factions in Israel which are predominantly conservative Jews who want to return Israel to a theocracy. Now that's a gross overstatement, or I should say summarization, not an overstatement, but a summarization. And so people who are in the know might want to nitpick what I said and nuance it a bit. Fine. I'm just trying to get through this quickly enough to be clear. So, um, so generally, the Supreme Court in Israel, 15 members, has had a right of center leaning. And this means that when things come to the Supreme Court, they generally lean 
into the policies supported by the ones known as the Likud party, L-I-K-U-D, Likud, L-I-K-U-D, Likud. And Netanyahu is a Likud party person. Well, so his defense minister said, I don't think we should uh, try to do this overhaul in the government. Now, one of the major overhauls that Netanyahu wanted was to make it possible for a 61-member majority of the Knesset, which is the uh, legislative body in Israel, which has 120 members, with a simple majority of 61 members, of course, half of 120 is 60, to be able to overturn um, to overturn policies or other things. And so they wanted to do this because, at least right now, in the Knesset, the uh, the Likud and the right wing, they hold a uh, they hold a majority. And so there are times that the the Likud party does not like what the Supreme Court re- rules. And so by making this opening, it would give them the ability to override the Supreme Court and effectively to ram through the policies that they want. And the defense minister said, I don't think that's where you want to go. That's a bad idea. And so Netanyahu dismissed him. And this triggered protests all across Israel, because what's happened over the last several years is Israel has taken on a growing left of center perspective among um, the younger set. Um, there is a there is a strong and growing gay rights movement within Israel. Uh, there are some which might surprise you. You might think, well, but they're Jews, and in the Torah it forbids homosexuality. That's true of the Torah, but many of these newer, younger Jews, um, they're they're Jews somehow ethnically or from a state perspective, but many of them are not particularly observant religiously. And so what you've got going on is a split between those who are conservatives, uh, more right of center, uh, Likud voting. Uh, They may include the Orthodox or the Lubavitchers. So the idea is if if we can throw this into the Knesset, they can override what the Supreme Court does. And the Supreme Court does not always rule in favor of the uh, of the Likud coalition, and so they are. They, it appears that what Netanyahu is trying to do is to um, be able to run through his policies. You might even say seize control of the government, but he's already the prime minister, and he already has at the moment um, a majority in the Knesset. So I don't think it's fair to say, or I think it's accurate to say, uh, seize control of the government. But that really seems to be the agenda. Well, so the defense minister said, I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, Netanyahu dismisses him. And this triggers a series of protests all around Israel. Now, in the heart of all of this, um, there's a couple of things that we need to be aware of. One is the settler movement. And this is the effort by certain groups to settle areas that were taken back in the Six-Day War, 1967, um, and in some cases, even the 48 war that were you know, taken as part of the initial uh, war of independence. And, uh, and then we have what's known as the Yom Kippur War of 73. So there are these various territories, and they're usually referred to by the wider world community as the occupied territories, meaning Israel occupies them. But as land taken in conflict, they actually don't have a legal right 
to build settlements or to settle that land uh, and to incorporate it into Israel. But there is a faction within Israeli uh, society that very much does want to incorporate it because they view it all as part of the promised land that God gave to Abraham. And because they view it as the promised land, it's like we don't need the approval of any world body, not the United Nations. We don't even need the approval of the, uh, of the Supreme Court because many times the Supreme Court does not rule in favor of these groups that you know, want to take this land and build settlements on it. And so there's a very sharp divide within Jewish society. And again, a lot of it is, uh, is revolving around one's religious sentiments. If you're, a, if you're a devout conservative Jew, Orthodox Jew, and you're trying to observe the, uh, the Torah, you're trying to live you know, according to the ways of maybe the Baal Shem Tov, who is uh, more of the charismatic or uh, ecstatic branch of Judaism, you might think of them maybe almost as charismatics. But to be clear, they're not they're not messianic. They don't believe in Jesus or Yeshua, as you say it in Hebrew. Um, but they, they have a kind of a charismatic flair to them. Um, there, there are a number of prominent rabbis, very conservative staunch rabbis who have very strong followings maybe think of some very strong pastors here in the u.s maybe from nashville or houston or dallas who have big followings and you know when they say something their people line up right behind it that's the kind of effect that you've got going on so on the one side on the left you've got these people who are embracing all the kind of new agenda of the modern age uh, from uh, well there's a there's a variety of them you know woke thinking as we call it and kind of rethinking the race question, rethinking sexuality. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole series of initiatives there. And then on the right side, you've got people saying, absolutely not. And Netanyahu looks like he's making a play to ram through the policies of the right um, by dismissing his defense minister. So, uh, so we've got those who want to settle these so-called occupied territories. And then we've got uh, Israel's ultra-religious community and we've got uh, the Mizrahi population. And the Mizrahis are people who are coming out of the Middle East and they're repatriating to Israel. They're, as, as they say in Hebrew, they're making Aliyah. They're returning to the land, to Haaretz. And so when we think about these people, uh, these, particularly these three, right? The settlers, the ultra-Orthodox, and the Mizrahi, they are pushing to take the land back because this is Israel's land by right. God promised it to us. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm trying to be neutral um, in the way I'm describing it, just so that you can hear what I'm saying and not tune out because maybe you don't like the way I'm saying it. Um, but let me just say this, you know, there are many groups here in the United States that have very strong opinions about the way things should be. And many of those are based on their religious beliefs because they look at the Bible and they say, look, this is what the Bible is, says is okay. This is what's not okay. This nation was founded by Christians. They wanted to raise up people that could, uh, you know, follow the ways of the Lord. And, and to be honest, folks, if we're, if we're fair-minded and honest about this, I know that there have been some dramatic shortcomings in it, but really that is what America was founded on. So when people are saying that America has departed from the ways of the Lord and all of this new thinking that's going on is really a complete change. It really actually is because I, I I'm old enough to remember when America, most of America was closed on Sundays 
because of blue laws. So people could go to church. You couldn't go shopping for anything. Um, you certainly weren't going to be able to buy alcohol. And there were, there were clear understandings about, you know, what kind of sexual behavior was okay. And never mind the whole homosexual question. If you took your girlfriend to a, you know, overlook or a park or something and you parked your car, part of what the police did was they went around and they would knock on the window, shine their light in and see if you were having sex in the back seat. I mean, this was America and it was coming out of the fact that we were trying to live according to the ways of God. And so, you know, we need to restrain the passions of these young people who may not yet have a right fear of the Lord. All right. So we've got these groups that would very much support Netanyahu's initiative uh, of, of being able to overturn uh, Supreme Court rulings in the Knesset. And by the way, the Knesset is not bicameral, it's unicameral. Only the state of Nebraska has a unicameral legislature in the United States. And by the way, cameral comes from the word camera, which refers to the uh, kind of aperture at the top of the domes that are over most of the state houses. So a bicameral legislature has two houses and a unicameral one has one. So the federal Congress of the United States is bicameral. It has a Senate and a House of Representatives. My home state of California is bicameral. We have a Senate and what we call an assembly, not a House of Representatives, but again, two houses. And so things get worked out between those two legislative bodies. And then they're sent in California to the governor for signature or for a veto. And similarly in uh, in Washington, we have a bicameral body and they work things out. They send it to the president for, um, for signing or for veto. So Israel's Knesset is unicameral. It, it, looks like, uh, it looks like what they have in the Knesset. All right. So other people perceive correctly that these reforms that he wants to push through could also have the effect of allowing Netanyahu to evade prosecution in his upcoming corruption trial. Uh, because again, he's been charged with corruption and, and wrongdoing. And many of the Israelis I know who like, uh, who like the Likud party and who generally vote more conservative, think Republican, if you will, many of those people, um, they kind of hold their nose when they think of Netanyahu. And so we've got the, this is what's going on. All right. So, what are some of the other initiatives that the Likud coalition supports that is triggering the left and the reaction that's going on within wider Israeli society? Well, one is full annexation of the West Bank. Now, if you've ever seen a, a map of Israel, you know that there's a section to the left side of the Jordan River, right in the center of the country. It's known as the West Bank. And at one time, this belonged to the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And Israel took it in the 67 war. It's been in their possession since. Um, there's been a little bit of settlement, but not a tremendous amount. Not the way people want it to be, uh, who are on the far right. And so um, Netanyahu's initiatives would have the effect of allowing that entire West Bank to be, to be annexed formally by Israel. Now, the international community would go berserk if this happened, just to be clear. But, but that's what's being proposed. Um, a second thing is a rollback of pro-LGBTQ plus legislation because Israel has become a hotbed of LGBTQ plus legislation. 
And again, think of the ultra-Orthodox who follow the Torah. Think of those who are following maybe the more charismatic uh, side of Orthodox Judaism, the, the Hasidim. Uh, this is absolutely anathema to them uh, that the LGBT would have so much sway and voice that they would have, uh, you know, gay pride uh, marches right through the old city of Jerusalem. Um, this is this is this is horrifying to them. They want this to go away. But of course, when you start talking about a rollback of those rights with things having gone as far as they have. There's no way that those who are in that camp or supportive of that camp, that they're just going to let go of this easily. Then there are laws uh, protect, protecting women's rights and minority rights. And again, the, this hard right coalition um, seems to want to roll back women's rights and minority rights. And that could have a lot of implications just for, you know, regular working women and, you know, mothers and so forth. So that's an issue. And then minority rights. Well, Israel, like many modern democracies, is a heterogeneous society with lots of races. And, um, in particular, there's a lot of um, uh, Ethiopian Jews who are black who have you know, incorporated into Jewish society after making Aliyah. But don't think racism is restricted to the United States. Um, some white Jews don't particularly care for black Jews. Uh, Israelis, and so they might want to do something to curtail the rights of people who've come from other nations. And it's not just black ones, by the way. I mentioned them, but but there's been a whole uh, aliyah and return of Jews coming out of Russia, coming out of Ukraine, and other areas. And so a lot of them are talking about we want to restrict the rights of these minorities. And then a, another major um, tenant that this coalition is after is a loosening of the rules of engagement when you can uh, when they can open fire uh, whether they be police or military in the face of protests <laughs> like they're having now uh maybe if they make a move to annex the west bank and those arabs who live in the west bank might rise up complain throw rocks light molotov cocktails blah 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 blah, blah. all of that um, would be part of it so um so the critics are basically saying that uh, that the Supreme Court, because of the way it functions in, in Israeli society, it really holds a check and balance function against the overreach of the uh, of the legislative chamber of the uh, Knesset. And then, uh, you know, obviously the various groups that would be affected by these initiatives were they to go through, um, they are certainly unhappy with the idea that it might actually go through. And, you know, uh, Netanyahu has been very, uh, I would say, shrewd in the way he has done what he has done, because he has uh, two people that are basically strong allies of his, whom he has allowed to stand to the fore and to advocate in favor of these so-called judicial reforms. And that allows Netanyahu to say a lot less. Um, anyway, that's the state of play right now. So we have this um, we have this internal tension in Israel. We can say more, but with it, there is the possibility that there will be. And Mike said this that there will be um, uh, domestic violence. You know, Mike said civil war. Uh, many Israelis are armed. They keep weapons in their homes because Israel is always on a hair trigger should they be invaded uh, once again. And so weapons are. I mean, everybody knows who has the weapons, but 
most Israelis who are military age have weapons in their home. So it would be very, very conceivable for people to just step out of their homes, armed and trained to use those weapons. And you would have the left against the right and it could potentially break into a civil war. And if that were to happen, while the country is you know, caught up like this, how do you call up reserves if Hezbollah and Hamas backed by Iran decide to stage an invasion or let loose 40 or 50,000 missiles and rockets against Israel. Um, it, it could literally be the death is raining down from above at the same time that the Jews are killing each other on the ground. And as Mike pointed out, this could destabilize the entire state of Israel. Uh, obviously the desired outcome would be that Israel ceased to exist. I mean, nothing would make Iran or Hamas or Hezbollah happier than that. Um, but, but even if it just resulted in thousands and thousands of casualties, this would be a horrifying scenario. Now, many of the people who listen to this podcast would be uh, pro-Israel. They may not know why they are pro-Israel. But, the, uh, but, but here's the bottom line. The Lord has pledged himself to Israel. And in Isaiah 62, thus the name of the fast, um, Isaiah says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. So Mike is saying, let's, let's follow that. Let's call out for Zion. Let's call out for Jerusalem. We're not going to be silent in the face of these kinds of major threats to the integrity and safety of, of the nation of Israel. And then it says, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So we're going to um, call out for Israel uh, that she would be spared, that she would act righteously. Um, there have been times I would say, whether even if you're pro-Israel, if we're honest, sometimes Israel has not always played with a, with a fair and even hand. Um, but many times they have. I think they've done better than their Arab neighbors. I'm just, I'm trying to be fair and even here. Uh, and her salvation is a burning torch. Well, one of the key tenets that Paul talks about in Romans is that one day all Israel will be saved and there will be an ingathering of the Jews. And people who study these matters closely are quite aware that Israel is actually one of the key linchpins to the end time harvest. And of course, we've been talking in recent weeks about the, uh, the harvest that has begun, the billion soul harvest, that this is underway. And I think next week we're going to do another podcast uh, dealing with some of these matters. Uh, so just stay tuned. We'll unpack that even more for you, why Israel is so key and some of these other key points. But, but anyway, right now, let's stay with Israel and its neighbors and what's going on internally. So um, it says, the nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So this makes clear that the Lord, despite the judgment that he was bringing on, in this case, the North Kingdom in the time of Isaiah, later the Southern Kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin uh, in the Kingdom of Judah, uh, notwithstanding, God still views them as a special people. Under discipline and chastisement, yes, but forsaken, absolutely not. And then he says, you will no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called the delight, shall be called my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you. 
and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then it goes on and says, and it's a famous line. People quote it all the time, although they may not always know where it came from. Isaiah 62, 6. On your walls of Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. Well, intercessors are watchmen. They're people who, they keep the night watches. And if something is amiss, they cry out and they say, hey, danger, get everybody out of bed. Let the, let the soldiers man the walls. So on your, on your walls, uh, I have set watchmen all day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him, the Lord, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. So the premise here is God has returned Haaretz, the land, to the Jews after nearly 2,000 years. It wasn't quite all of 2,000 years, but very, very close to 2,000 years of being away from the land and in the entire history of the world. No people has ever been regathered to a land after that long. And the Jews kept their national identity, their national language, many of their customs that, that undergird their culture. Those were kept intact until the return of the Jews to the Holy Land. And then it goes on and it says, um, I will not again give your grain to food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. Well, okay, if this is a promise of the Lord, and we're going to intercede into this promise, then we should expect that the Lord himself will protect the integrity of the nation of Israel. That's not the same thing as saying that the Lord may not have some things he wants to um, address or speak into uh, with respect to the nation of Israel, but it is to say that he's not going to abandon it once again. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, or Zion, Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out and a city not forsaken. Well, Mike has a lot of teaching on this. He waxes far more eloquent than I could in this podcast. But this is really the, the substance, the undergirding passage of the, of the fast. So um, I believe in God's promises to Israel. I believe that the Lord intends to keep that land in the possession of the descendants of Abraham because he said he would never, ever break his covenant with Abraham. Never. And so now that the Jewish people have returned to the Holy Land, um, however, this all gets worked out and it's a messy uh, and difficult process, but however it gets worked out, um, many of the messianic promises say that all the nations of the earth will go up to the Temple Mount, to Mount Sion, um, and there they will worship the Lord. So there is a gathering of all nations to the very Temple Mount that right now has an Islamic mosque on top of it. Um, this is foretold in multiple of the prophets. We could look at that maybe next week. But the bottom line is that's the promise. So this is really, uh, we're living in the time of fulfillment of prophecy. The fact that Jerusalem and indeed the land of Israel, most of it is under the control of the Jewish people. 
this is what God said would happen. But there are many, many nations that are not willing to accept that. They are, they are fighting the ways of God, the promises and prophecies of the Lord. And so um, the fast is really that Israel would be kept safe, that she would be protected, that her people would not be slaughtered, and that the righteousness of God would be administered within Israel as well. Um, we don't want to say we're the people of God and not live righteously. And so we want righteousness in the administration of government and power. Well, it's pretty much a monologue today, Grant. I didn't, didn't give you much of a chance, but if you want to ask a couple of questions, uh, we could take them now. Well, and I think, uh, and we'll probably talk more about this um, next week, but I, I think, you know, one of the points that Mike uh, was wanting to make was all of this was not in his, in his peripherals when he, when the Lord was leading him and, uh, and the folks there to begin the fast and, and just, it was laid it on all of their hearts uh, to do. And I think that's what was such a, you know, a monumental um, thing along with, it was the 40th anniversary, 40 years is significant uh, in, right. biblical, in biblical times, uh, specifically around the, the nation of Israel. And, um, and so it was the 40th anniversary that the Lord called Mike into his, uh, initial fast uh, that kind of was the catalyst point for everything that's happened with with him and ihop and, and all of those sort of things uh, going forward so that so just drawing that whole connection piece I that's think right. um, I think is, is one of the things that we wanted to um, point out as well it seems it doesn't just seem like a good idea to us it also seems like a good idea to the Holy Spirit as well which is we want to do both right that's right Mike pointed out that there were several prophecies that coincided this year, 2023. And if you roll back 40 years, you're at 1983. And as you think about that, um, you know, there were these several prophecies, which, you know, prophecies are meant to be stewarded. And many of the prophecies, you know, in the word of God were stewarded by the Jews when they were in exile, um, longing and waiting for the, the day when they would return to their land and most particularly the one that I, that I point out all the time when I'm teaching on this dimension of, of prophecy, because there are other dimensions. Most particularly, um, Jeremiah the prophet had said before they went into exile under Babylon, when 70 years have ended, you will be brought back. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel says, I was reading in the book of Jeremiah the prophet, and I perceived that the time of our return was at hand. He actually saw it six years before. So 64 years had gone by, and what do you know, bang, the decree of return under King Cyrus was issued in the 70th year. And so those who wanted to were allowed to return to go to their homeland, and so the word was fulfilled. So this idea of prophecies as signposts, as signs and wonders, as markers of what's going on is well-established in biblical thought. We haven't had too many prophets who have the chops to be able to foretell that far into the future with, with accuracy and precision. But the thing Mike was saying was Bob Jones was a prophet of, of that caliber, of that class. And so there have been a number of things that he prophesied as prophetic signposts, which have happened. And you, you either have to like do this, yeah, 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 or you have to admit that God spoke sovereignly and now those things have come to pass. And therefore this is the time of that fulfillment. 
Mm. Right. And so we, we want, um, you know, folks that listen uh, here and, you know, I know we'll be talking about it in our church and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about it uh, where you go to participate in this and just to come into an agreement um, with believers all over the world, uh, praying specifically for uh, Israel and, uh, and the people there uh, then. Now that fast, you can find information on it's Isaiah, the number six, two, uh, fast.com. Uh, and, uh, you can find information there. I think we're going to have a link on the Orbis, uh, site as well, or on social media yes. or, um, that's right. Something like that. So you can find more information. I believe it starts May 7th through the 28th. If my memory serves. That's right. Um, and the, and the ask that Mike is making is this does not need to be a straight water fast. Um, he said, pick what you're going to fast. Now, some will do a straight water fast, but some will say, I'm going to give up chocolate or wine, or I'm not going to eat any meat. I'll only eat vegetables or, you know, whatever they do it, however they want to do it. But that's your fast for 21 days. And then uh, what he's asking is that for one hour a day, you gather with at least one other person and pray for Israel, for her safety, for integrity, and that this crisis would pass. Um, if you want to gather with three or four, you could do that in person, or you could do it over a Zoom link. Everybody's using Zoom these days. Um, however you want to do it, but one hour a day of prayer. It doesn't all have to be at once. You can pray 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at night, but pray with whomever you intend to pray. Um, I know people who are flying to Israel to do it. I know people who are going to Kansas City to pray in their prayer room. Again, how you do it, the way you do it, that's up to you. Um, but do be praying for one hour a day from May 7 to May 28 with at least one other person. Why one other person? Well, because we're two or more gathered together. There I am in their midst. And so there is power in prayer when we pray together. Um, so that's basically it. That's all I have to say today. And uh, appreciate you guys all listening in on this podcast. I hope that this one helped clarify a lot of the language and maybe even jargon that was being thrown out last week. And for those of you who got a little bit baffled and mystified, hopefully we've managed to iron out some of the background and presuppositions a little more carefully. Yeah, Ken, as, as always, you did a great job uh, synthesizing a lot of uh, complex material. That's one of your specialties. So uh, <laughs> thank you uh, for that and for clarifying. I know I've, I've talked to several leaders uh, in our city. They're going to be joining in and it's, it's, there's a lot here and there's a lot at stake. And the Spirit of the Lord seems to be behind it. Uh, next week, if we can pull it off, as I know, I think you and I are both traveling next week to different places. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about, try to string together. The Lord is certainly moving on the earth uh, at this time. And so it's not insignificant. It's not a small thing that here we are with things happening in Asbury and revival and all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of confusion and potential danger in Israel as well. And so we want to kind of talk through maybe the prophetic times in which we're finding ourselves in the timelines uh, and what the Lord is doing on the earth. Is that right, Ken? That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll do that. And Ken, I know you've got somewhere to be. And, uh, and so we'll go ahead and, and jump off of here. Thank you so much for making time. You're in a hotel room somewhere in the world. And, uh, and so we, we thank you for, for all of the effort and energy you take uh, to this. We thank you all as well for tuning in and for listening to God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. We'll be right back here 
next week, same time. We'll see you all then. We've recently updated the Orbis Ministries app with Ken's free teaching archive. You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to download today.